It's good to see you guys. Excited to spend some time with you tonight. Uh, as Dave mentioned, we're going to have a uh, what we call a, a family worship day uh, or weekend uh, where we keep our elementary kids in our gathering with us for the sake of teaching them what it looks like to gather together as the church. Uh, we try to commit to do that uh, more often than some of you would want and less often than others of you would want, and we feel like in that we're in a real good space. Uh, and so uh, that's a, a few times a year where we're going to spend some time with our young people together. Uh, we, we really appeal to you during those times, if you're not one of those young people, uh, to be extra patient with the kind of distractions and the wiggles and all of the things that uh, we, we look to during that time because the alternative is that this church will just die a generation from now. And uh, we don't really want that. And so instead, we want to be a place that trains up a future generation to know the Lord, know the things of the Lord, uh, so that we might worship Him. And so a couple things that we do to try to uh, come alongside you and assist in that. Uh, actually, tonight, there'll be three things. Uh, one is that uh, we have printed off, alongside the bulletin, uh, these little packets of notes called the uh, Family Gathering Notes, and we want you to take one for each of your kids. So if you did not get one on the way in, you just slip your hand up real quick and Dave will bring them right to you and he'll get you one so that you can have them to fill out. Uh, it's got word searches and maze and kind of some fun things uh, for your kids to do to kind of stay engaged as we work through it. The second thing uh, is along with that, we're going to try to kind of gear and interact during the sermon a little bit more than we do typically. Uh, normally you can kind of doze off and just listen to me preach. Uh, however, we're going to be asking some questions and kind of connecting, especially with our younger people. Keep them connected and engaged into it. The third thing um, that I wanted to just, this isn't necessarily based on this week alone, but I wanted to take an opportunity to um, encourage you in this, is one of the ways that I think we train up future generations to know and to love the Lord uh, is to teach them the scriptures and to uh, especially to read to them. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the concerns I have, honestly, frankly, about uh, what it looks like train up our kids in the scriptures is knowing uh, and interacting with many people in my age group, maybe even the age group above me, uh, one of the kind of commonplace things in childhood was to read the Bible in such a way or teach the Bible in Sunday school classes in such a way that it contained a lot of isolated, moralistic accounts. Whitney and I were actually talking about it this week, that uh, growing up, you didn't even necessarily necessarily have to have a good understanding of the scriptures. You didn't even have to necessarily have a good understanding of Jesus, uh, but you were probably familiar with things like David and Goliath or the parting of the Red Sea or Noah and the ark, or at least to the extent as those accounts served individually as moralistic, here's what you ought to do based on some principle given in the scriptures without really a whole look at what all of the Old Testament points to, which is the truth of the gospel. In fact, as we get into John 6 today, you're going to see Jesus allude to that very thing as they begin to talk about Moses and what Moses did in providing bread in the wilderness. And Jesus goes, no, Moses was just a messenger. I'm the one who 
expected that it always points to me. And so uh, we believe heavily in the value of reading and teaching your kids scripture, and we believe in doing that in connection to the whole of the gospel message so that uh, you don't find it as isolated moral accounts, but rather you continue to see the picture of Jesus in all of the scriptures. And so uh, I do want to tell you, we have a tool that we use uh, frequently if you have kids or grandkids. Uh, We give them away oftentimes. Uh, They're called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Takes you through many of those moralistic stories. Got Daniel in here and David and Goliath and all of the others that you may know if you grew up in church or you might be unaware of if you didn't grow up in a church environment. And it connects all of them into the larger narrative, the meta-narrative of Jesus in the gospel message. And so if you don't have one of these, uh, we want to use it as an opportunity tonight uh, to give you one. I'm not going to make you like put your hand up uh, to embarrass you, but what we'll do is uh, we'll take them, we'll throw them in the lobby afterwards and have them, you just, if you want one for you to read to your kids, if you're a grandparent, you want to read it to your grandkids, just take one. It's a worthy investment for us. We believe it's a value to give you an opportunity and just some guidance and some how-to direction to read your kids, care for them spiritually. Amen? Okay. Let's go. John chapter 6. If you got a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to continue on into our uh, examination of John's gospel account that again and again uh, really, really provides a different point of emphasis than the other three gospel accounts. The other three, known as the synoptics, uh, really work to kind of give a comprehensive view or trying to show in detail all that Jesus did during his life and ministry. John's is far less comprehensive and far more theological. It's designed to show you by and large the identity and the authority of Jesus over all things. And so what we've seen in the first five chapters is John introducing Jesus, trying to help you understand his identity so that you might know him, and in knowing him you would have eternal life. And he's trying to display not only that Jesus' identity is important, but that wrapped up in this identity is that Jesus, as the God-man, the Son of God, is the one who has authority over all things. Now, what's really fascinating about this is frequently, as we're watching it, uh, people have interacted with said authority with either a great deal of joy and excitement or a great deal of callous and resistance depending on what the authority is displayed over. So, so what I mean by that is uh, when Jesus displays his authority over the natural order of the world, it's generally very well received by those who are connected to it. Think back to John chapter 2. Jesus at a wedding. His mom goes, hey, they don't got any wine left. And Jesus goes, okay, fill up the water pots. They fill it up. He turns it into wine, better wine than they served even at the beginning of the wedding. And out of this, he begins to build a reputation because he's got authority over, apparently, what it looks like to make water and what it looks like to make wine. That seems like a useful, exciting tool, and so his reception is good. Now, what happens is that authority really kind of gets pressed against or rejected when the authority 
leaves natural order and it moves into his authority over mankind, which it frequently does. In fact, in John 2, right after he turns the water into wine, he heads down into Jerusalem, walks into the temple, overturns tables, drives out people with the money changing and the animals selling, and he says, you can't do this, you're making my father's house into a robber's den. And out of that, they say, what authority do you have to do these things? Show us a sign that you might have authority for this because your authority derived from the fact that I am the Son of God is not enough. Not only is it not enough, it's frequently resisted and more and more intensely resisted each time it's going to occur. And so he goes on and heals a man on the Sabbath we looked at a couple weeks ago. All of a sudden, someone can walk, authority over healing in the natural order, well received, praised, rejoiced, did it on the Sabbath day. Well, maybe we want to kill you. He goes in and continues to do things by the nature of his authority that are well received when they reply to open when, when they reply to natural order, and yet when they come back to what mankind is meant to trust in or believe in or submit to, the response gets significantly worse. Today, that very thing really intensifies. So we're going to watch Jesus demonstrate his authority over the natural order in feeding people. We're going to demonstrate his authority over the natural order as he walks on water. And then he's going to demonstrate his authority over mankind and life spiritually itself in him. And it goes from good to great, to, no, that's weird. And so in this, uh, I think we take a lesson 2,000 years later and look and go, Jesus, as the one God-man, has authority over all things, which means that he makes the rules. So, so I want to I wanna do this for the sake of our young people and uh, honestly for the many of us. Uh, I want to play a video, watch kind of what happens, and then we're going to build some context around it and read in John chapter 6 as Jesus is going to do something miraculous. It begins this way and then we'll play this video. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain and he, there he sat down with his disciples. So in Judea, the mounting pressures against Jesus' authority over mankind has led the religious elites to think, we've got to get rid of this guy, we want to kill him. He withdraws, he heads back up into the Galilee region near the sea. While he's healing the sick, again, his authority over the natural order, very well received. People are excited about it. They're gathering around. They've come to see him. He goes onto the side of the mountain and he begins to teach. And we're going to pick up there and go ahead and play that video and we'll watch it together. Filled full. There were once 5,000 tired and hungry and probably very grumpy people sitting on a hillside wanting their dinner. They'd come to hear Jesus that day. They came before breakfast, stayed all morning, all afternoon, and way past dinner. No one had meant to be out there that long, but that's how it was, listening to Jesus, as if time didn't exist. People could listen to Jesus for hours, and on this particular day, that's just what they did. 
but they hadn't brought enough food and they couldn't just go and buy themselves a burger and fries to go because, of course, they were in the middle of nowhere with no shops or restaurants. Uh, besides, that kind of food wasn't invented yet. What would they do? Jesus' friends had an idea. Let's send everyone home for dinner. They don't need to go, Jesus said. You can give them something to eat. Did Jesus want them to travel all the way to town and buy food for everyone? Jesus' friends panicked. But we don't have enough money. What food do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. Now, there was a little boy in the crowd. He had brought a lunch that his mother had made for him that morning. He looked at his five loaves and two fish. It wasn't much. Well, <coughs> not nearly enough for 5,000. But it was all he had. I have some, he says. Jesus' friends laughed when they saw his little lunch. That's not nearly enough, they said. But they were wrong. Jesus knew it didn't matter how much the little boy had. God would make it enough, more than enough. Jesus said, bring me what you have. And so the little boy gave Jesus his lunch. Jesus winked at the little boy and whispered in his ear, watch. How in the world will Jesus feed everyone with just that? Jesus' friends said, because they thought it was impossible. But Jesus knew the one who made all the fish in the oceans. And Jesus knew the one who in the very beginning had made everything out of nothing at all. How hard would something like this be for someone like that? Jesus took the little boy's lunch, looked up to heaven and thanked his father. Then Jesus gave the little lunch back to his friends. As Jesus' friends started to hand out the food, do you know what? It was the strangest thing. No matter how much they broke off, there was always more and more and more. Enough for 5,000. Everyone ate as much as they wanted. And second helpings, third helpings, even fourths until they were full and still there were leftovers. Well, Jesus did many miracles like this. Things people thought couldn't happen, that weren't natural. But it was the most natural thing in all the world. It's what God had been doing from the beginning, of course. Taking the nothing and making it everything. Taking the emptiness and filling it up. Taking the darkness and making it light. All right, so let's, let's recap a little bit, and let's let our young people help us out. Jesus, on the side of the mountain, begins to teach, what time of day is it as this starts? Is it dinner time, breakfast time, middle of the day? Do you remember? Callaway? Well, when they get hungry, it's dinner. But, you know, they've been out there all day day early listening for, for, to him teach for hours and hours and hours until eventually it gets late you ever been outside if if you're an elementary kid do you get outside sometime this this during the day today do you play outside come on do you have do you have arms that work got outside a little bit was it fun it's not like a million degrees below zero, right? So life's getting a little better. 
In fact, once it starts to really warm up, you kind of hit summertime, you get those days where you go out in the morning and you could get kind of lost in doing something really great and all of a sudden you realize you haven't eaten anything and it's like two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon or four in the afternoon, you miss lunch altogether. That ever happened to you? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, no, he's not lying. It's never happened to him, but the girls maybe. Uh, out of this, right, here's, here's what happens. 5,000 people, that's a remote place. Jesus is kind of withdrawn away from town. All of these people have pressed in. The Bible tells us uh, it's 5,000 men. So if we're really going to get tricky about the numbers, we're probably closer to a crowd of some 12,000 or so people. Uh, his request is made to who? Who does Jesus tell to feed these people? Come on, elementary kids. Don't let an old person show you up. Who, who does? Now if I call on an adult, I'm like locked in. I'm in trouble. Who does Jesus say feed the people? Clara. Yeah, he tells the disciples. Now, out of all the people, all right, stay with me here, who should know Jesus well and what he's capable of, who would have the best shot at that? Come on, Kelly. Yeah, the disciples, right? These are, these are the disciples who have been watching the things that Jesus has done firsthand. These are the same disciples that it includes who were once fishing and threw their nets over the other side of the boat and watched Jesus take what was no fish and make tons of fish. It was the disciples who should have understood this, and yet they didn't, right? In fact, the disciples are confused by it, kind of confounded, and go, hey, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat, uh, looking at the size of the crowd? Uh, this Jesus was saying, not because the disciples needed to go buy the food, but for he himself knew what he was intending to do. And so Philip, one of the disciples, answered him and is like, hey, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little. Here's, here's the problem, right? His lack of faith in the authority of Jesus. Until it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus then tells the disciples to have the people do what? Say it loud. Yeah, sit. Yeah, he says, have them sit down. Uh, the other gospel accounts tell us in groups of 50s and 100s, the disciples kind of organize the ministry, get together. Jesus looks up to the heaven, gives thanks, and he begins to break bread and feed a crowd of thousands with five loaves and two fish. It's this kind of incredible thing, Jesus showing his authority, and a couple things we notice. One, the disciples don't find themselves as a people of remarkable faith. I always feel like that's an important thing for us to point out as we read the scriptures, because as people who know Christ, uh, we recognize that Jesus is choosing his disciples, not because they're uh, A-plus varsity people, but rather because he's choosing his disciples. And so if you know him, it's not because you're some great 
person or wonderful specimen or you're good enough to serve him. He didn't need people who were good enough. He just wanted those who would faithfully obey his authority. And so the disciples, not realizing what was going to happen, eventually they do obey. Out of this, Jesus shows his authority over the natural order, multiplying the bread. And here's the thing, the crowd is really, really happy. Verse 14, it says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They're excited about it. Now, what's interesting is how Jesus responds to this. Look at verse 15, if you've got your Bible. Let's read along and see what Jesus does. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, this is interesting because uh, this is not generally the depiction of most evangelical churches in the United States when something amazing happens. The first thought is let's capitalize on it, let's draw people in, let's figure out a way to maximize the effectiveness of such an incredible event. Jesus rather withdraws. He gets away from the crowd who are looking to make him king. Uh, The Bible tells us that the disciples actually push out into the water. Jesus has isolated himself on the mountain. And the crowds uh, have, have sort of had their fill, went content, and left. And during the night, Jesus walks out on the water to the disciples as they cross the sea. Now, the other gospel accounts give us a whole bunch more about this specific instance than John does. Uh, Because John ultimately is less concerned about this interaction and more concerned about what happens after it that I really want to point out to you tonight. Jesus crosses the sea. The disciples get to witness not only the one who has authority over bread, but now they witness the one who has authority over the land and the water. He's just walking across water like it is land. And they get to the other side. And in the morning, the crowd who was once there with him, now don't know where he's at. It says the next day the crowd stood on the other side of the sea and saw that there was one, there was no other small boat there except for one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples onto the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone and there came other small boats from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats And they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So not only has Jesus left, but the crowds now kind of excited about what has happened are following after him, trying to find him, seeking him out. And and again, kind of contrary to what uh, we might think of in church strategy, Jesus is going to know that what they're actually doing is not seeking him, but are seeking self-satisfying things. Look at what he says. Verse 26 of John 6. Jesus answered the crowds, answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. 
Here's, here's what Jesus is noting, that they're not after him. They've just come after the fact that he fed them in a way that they didn't understand. Um, he had demonstrated authority that was beneficial to them, so they were excited about it. Here, here's how it works. Uh, when we first, Whitney and I first got married, uh, we had gotten into doing youth ministry at a pretty large church and we're, we're focused on middle schoolers because they're crazy and that's like the most fun for me. Uh, we had yet to have kids of our own. And so one of the things that I was really good at was identifying a lot of like really unhealthy foods to feed these middle school students and uh, their younger siblings right before I would send them home. And so uh, it was kind of like kind of like a fun thing. I had a lot of parents in the church who were friends of mine who would take their elementary kids to youth group, and then right before youth group would end, I just load them up with sugar. Tootsie Rolls, lollipops, Snickers, whatever. You just fill them up to a point where, like, you, you might make them throw up, but as long as they're in the car by then, it's kind of like victory. And so uh, the parents... Used to, used to increasingly like get agitated with me. Uh, in fact, we, we started having kids of our own that could eat candy, and we moved out here so we could get away from them and, and kind of avoid the retribution that was coming our way. Uh, but out of this, you know what happened? Those kids really liked me when I had candy, right? And when I didn't have candy, they really had very little opinion about me whatsoever, right? Uh, when I was there to offer candy, it was desirable for them to be around me. And when the candy ran out, my influence over them ran out along with it. And so Jesus is accusing these people of the same thing. In fact, I, I, I just note this. I think this is one of the dangers of one of the most common ideas of what we call the gospel message in common church as it stands today, which is uh, if you don't want to go to hell, believe in Jesus and he'll take you into heaven and get you away from there. Ultimately, the God in said scenario isn't God. The God is hell avoidance. And so it's not that that's not true that Jesus takes us out and passes us away from the judgment of God in hell and into eternal life. It is true, but it's ultimately true for the glory of God, not just so that you could find something that is self-satisfying. And so Jesus is accusing these people that they're not interested in him. They're interested in the fact that they ate the loaves and were filled. And so he says, you need to stop going after the food that perishes, but rather that you would look for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, they kind of double down on this. They says, therefore, they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Again, it's always about his identity and his authority. You believe in me. That's the works of God. It's not about you doing things. It's not about you figuring things out. It's not about you working harder. It's about you believing me as the one who God has sent. Now look at, look at what they say. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Now that seems interesting because we're a day away from him taking some kid's lunch and feeding a town twice the size of Darlington. 
Amen? Seem kind of crazy that you're demanding a sign now, the day after? In fact, not only are they demanding it, look what they said. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. They go, they go by the way, not only are we looking for a sign, but let's go to this extreme. Uh, back in the day, Moses gave us bread every day. I mean, you fed us one dinner, but when they were in the wilderness, they had manna every day. And they hated it, but that's negligible according to the point that they're making right now. Here's what happens. Instantly, they're interested no longer in a Jesus who has authority over their life. They're interested in a Jesus who can give them their fill. Now, here's what I want you to see. Jesus is going to respond to them in a great deal of patience. And I think by it, kind of give us some things that we need to recognize. And so I want to read to you from verse 32 all the way to verse 40. And then just observe a couple things. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I will raise up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Let me just note a couple things about this. First of all, Jesus' answer to them as they're looking for this bread in the wilderness is, Moses didn't give you that bread. The Father did. And you know, the ultimate work of bread, it was to point to me, the bread of life. That, uh, like we said earlier, as we were talking about those Bibles, right, that Jesus is littered throughout all of the Old Testament. He's written on every page of the scripture that when God was sustaining his people in the wilderness through the manna that had come down from heaven, ultimately it was meant to be a picture of the fact that some thousands of years later, Jesus was going to come and he was going to give himself as the bread of life, that you would have life in him eternal life, life that was greater than manna in the wilderness, life that would be fulfilled through him. Now here's, here's the second thing. Notice what he says in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Now, we uh, maybe have a tendency to gloss over that, but uh, that language is significant to the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. In fact, uh, it comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. Here's the interaction. God has called Moses, that same Moses that they're saying is better than Jesus here in this exact account, uh, to go and lead his people out of Egypt. And Moses, worried about what his people might do and how they might respond, says, well, who do I even tell them that you are? 
And God, rather than defining himself by any context or any standard of the world, says this, I am who I am. That he says, I'm the very essence of creation. I don't need to define myself by what the world defines me. I'm bigger than that. I created all this. I am. The name of God, Yahweh, I am, is how he describes himself and how Moses carries it back to the people of Israel. And so again and again and again throughout the scriptures, Jesus is going to go, I am the bread of life that is produced in me. That I am the one sent from the Father. I am the one that you are meant to behold. I am the one that holds eternal life. And it is not through your dealings or your workings or your doings. It is through me. The one who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now, what's fascinating about this is verse 41. It says, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they are saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, who father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They're, they're just frustrated with the whole idea, which kind of leads back to verse 28, 29, 30, when they go, hey, uh, what authority? If you could show us a sign, then we would believe in you. No, you wouldn't, because even as I describe myself, you continue to stand in your unbelief and resistance as he says, I am the bread of life. And, and now, uh, he continues to grow to a greater extreme even than before. Look at how Jesus answers them. Do not grumble among, among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down out of heaven, so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, and so now they, they actually begin to argue. They get angry about it. And there's this kind of like weird cannibalistic exchange of like, is there even enough for him to eat? I know he's split those uh, fish and bread, but like how much of this guy can we actually eat? And he's talking about eating his flesh. And Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. But listen to this. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So who eats me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. We're going to... We're going to finish this evening by taking what we call the Lord's Supper together. It's a depiction of the, the imagery that Jesus is describing here. Now, he, he doesn't mean that we're 
eating his physical flesh and drinking his physical blood. Here, rather, he's giving the idea that in his death and in his resurrection, we have taken and seen our sin lifted off of us so that in believing in him, we have eternal life. The Apostle Paul actually recalls it in 1 Corinthians 11 and says that as we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. Remembrance of his flesh, his body given for us, his blood shed for us, that in him is true life and life eternal. Now, as we get there, let me give you one warning according to the scripture, and then uh, we'll pray and we'll take the Lord's Supper together as we close. A few verses later in this same interaction, this kind of wild interaction through the scriptures, says this, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and they weren't walking with him anymore. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, over and over again in the scripture, is demonstrating his authority. And he's offering up his body and his blood as bread and life. That he says, you eat of my flesh so that you have life and life eternal. Behold and believe in me. And so I want to do this. We're going to pray together examining our hearts, that this wouldn't be some religious observance alone, but rather that this would be a reflection and a proclamation, a remembrance of Jesus' death until he comes. Uh, And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Uh, If you did not grab one of these on the way in, just do this real quick. Slip your hand up and Dave will get you one. And then we'll spend some time in prayer and in worship together. And we'll conclude that with taking the Lord's Supper and singing one more song tonight. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you sent your Son into the world. The one who spoke it into being made flesh. And that he demonstrates his authority over time, over space, over nature, over all of this creation, and that he demonstrates his authority over us, that you have given us to him, that he would be the one who shepherds, protects, and holds us into grace and eternal life. And so I pray that as we Consider our hearts, it would be a time where we examine our lives, asking, are we continuing to return to you? Are we, are we continuing to see you as the bread of life? Let us, let us examine ourselves for a few seconds, and in doing so, consider what it means to be a people who believe and behold you as the bread of life.
Lord, let us be a people who love and serve you, who behold you well. You as living bread. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. You do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread of life. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing one more song. In fact, the Bible tells us that at the Last Supper, as Jesus introduces this as a way to remember him as living bread, his flesh as the bread of life, that we would remember it. Uh, the Bible says that after they ate and drank, they sang a hymn together. So let's, let's do that. I'll ask you to stand and we'll finish our evening worshiping in song.